you would turn in your Bibles to the letter that church wrote to the church at Colossae, uh, Colossians, if you would, please turn there. You know, the, the fine art of letter writing has seemed to cease with texts and with emails, right? Instagram, I don't know, all these social media outlets, right? that are available. But, you know, there are some who are continuing letter writing, and I, I just have a few from some children that I thought you might enjoy as we turn to Colossians. Dear Brody, writes Liam, Miss P made me write you this note, and all I want to say, I need to say sorry, for it's not, I'm not really sorry, because I tried to feel sorry, but I can't. <laughs> Dear Miss McMillan, you're a good teacher, but not my favorite. <laughs> Sam. <laughs> I've had a couple of those. Uh, Dear Tooth Fairy, I lost my tooth on the 23rd of October. It's now November the 12th. You owe me one dollar. Not to be hard, but I need money, Anissa. <laughs> oh, dear. And, and here's one to the Lord. Dear God, you know, maybe Cain and Abel would not kill each other so much if they had their own rooms. It works for my brother and me. Signed, Ralph. Well, letter writing uh, is, uh, was very common in the first century. In fact, we have several what we call epistles or letters that are contained in the New Testament. And our focus this morning is going to be on Colossians. Thirteen letters that Paul wrote are included in the canon. Uh, you know how they're arranged in the New Testament? They're arranged by size. The largest letter of Paul's is first. That makes a lot of sense, right? I don't know. Uh, but that is how the canonical books were uh, included, and, and they're arranged by size. Colossians being one of the smaller ones is, is one of the last. It's known as a twin epistle. Its twin is Ephesians, because 78 out of the 155 verses in Colossians you will find in Ephesians. Isn't that interesting? Before we begin this journey, though, into this book, and we're going to spend several weeks studying the book of Colossians, it should take us through Thanksgiving, and then we'll focus on the Christmas story and the Advent uh, during that time. I, I thought it'd be helpful to step back because there's some data that we need to know and to better understand this book as we dive into it. As you can see, uh, the, Paul even tells us right from the get-go that he, the Apostle Paul, is the author. That is true with all 13 books. It says, Paul to whoever greetings, or Chirene in the Greek, right? And, and so all of the letters he will identify himself, and, and Paul mentions his name a couple times. Look at the end of the letter. This is helpful. Look at this. This tells us much. He says in verse 18, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. And then he says, remember my chains. Paul is imprisoned when he writes this book. There are four during his first imprisonment that he will write from Rome under house arrest. Colossians is one of those. So we're looking at around the early 60s when he pens this epistle. Interestingly, the church at Colossae was not founded by Paul. The apostle will write only two letters to folks that he did not, uh, well, where he didn't establish a church, Rome and here at Colossae. In fact, we know who this church, uh, how it started, and it's under the ministry of Epaphras. Look at verse 7. You've learned the gospel, Paul states, from Epaphras, which is short for Epaphroditus. 
I know there's a name for you, right? If you're looking for a child's name, a son's name in the future, try that one. Uh, Epaphras is the, the fellow that has helped establish this church, most likely when Paul was at Ephesus in Asia Minor, uh, the gospel spread over 100 miles east to this town called Colossae. It's only about 12 miles from Laodicea. Uh, in fact, there's, there's no archaeological work that's been done at Colossae. It's just a mound. And uh, if you stand on this mound and I look over, you look over, you would see Laodicea. These two towns were becoming quite rivals because by the first century, Colossae had was uh, its glory days had passed. And Laodicea was rising up out of the ranks. And it's interesting, I, this rivalry between the two towns, I think Paul knew, and that's why he said in chapter 4 of this book, he says, after you've read the letter I've sent to you, have it read at the church of Laodicea. <laughs> you guys are going to get along one way or another, right? I, I think that's what's happening here and why he's telling this church to deliver it to another town. We know that the letters were passed circularly. You can, you can imagine if you were over Laodicea and you heard that Paul wrote the church at Colossia letter, you would want to read it. But why? Why would Paul write this letter to a group of believers that he had really no interaction with apart from what Epaphras has told him? I think there are four reasons, and if you're writing these down, uh, let me give them to you. First, it's he's interested in their spiritual development. That's going to be seen at this uh, opening as we, we dive into the prayer of thanksgiving at the beginning of the letter this morning. He's interested in their spiritual development. He's also writing to refute false teaching. What exactly is going on is difficult. Uh, you know, it, it's kind of like watching a Charlie Brown show and you've got this telephone conversation going on. You know, you know, wah, 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 wah. Yeah, and I was saying, wah, wah, wah. And you're trying to piece it together. And, and that's what we're trying to do as we study this book. But there seems to be some type of syncretistic religion, a little bit of Christianity, a little bit of Judaism. And, you know, we say, oh, that's just awful. Uh, it's no different than today. <laughs> uh, I taught a course on ethics and Christian thought. And I had a, a, a student who said, well, I take a little bit of Christianity, I take a little bit of Satanism, she said this, and I take a bit of uh, post-modernity and I put it all together and that's my ethical system. Uh, we might call it egoism, but we'll leave it at that, right? So what Paul is going to do throughout this letter is to show the supremacy of Christ. It's, it's just beautiful. And that's one of the reasons we're studying this book as we launch this church. He's also going to explain the mission of Tychicus and Onesimus. Don't worry, I won't test you over those. But you've got to ask, why didn't Epaphras go and deliver the letter to the church? He knew the folks. Because according to Philemon, the book of Philemon, verse 23, Epaphras is in prison with Paul at Rome for the gospel. So that's why he's not delivering it. And then obviously there's to send greetings, which is seen at the end of the book. But if you wanted a theme for this book, it's the supremacy of Christ. There is no doubt. Well, every letter has a structure in the first century. It's very common. You start with a greeting, then you move to a thanksgiving. Then this is true not only of our Christian letters that we have here. It's true of secular writings from the first century. Then it moves to the, the body or the main content. And Paul's letters do vary, don't they? First Corinthians, he's got a paddle. He's spanking hard. He's very upset in 1 Corinthians. Philippians, I mean, it's, oh, I love you so much. Right? And then there's a closing. So we see that structure. 
And this morning I want to look at the, the greeting and I want to look at the thanksgiving. So let's go to the text and let's look at this. So starting in Colossians 1.1, from Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother. Timothy will be mentioned in the greeting in over half of Paul's letters. Timothy, of all of Paul's associates, plays a vital role. He's key. In fact, it will be Timothy who's given the baton at Ephesus to take over that region. Our brother, he says, to the saints, the faithful brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae, grace and peace to you from God our Father. Now, I'm reading out of the Net Bible, the New English Translation. I, I know you may have a different version, so bear with me. Uh, if you want to look it up, it's free online, but the Net Bible. And then Paul states in this Thanksgiving, and this is one entire sentence in the Greek, the next several verses. We always give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. They've had several prayer meetings, haven't they, for this group of believers. He says, since we've heard about your faith in Christ Jesus, the love that you have for all the saints, your faith and love have risen from the hope laid up for you in heaven, which you have heard of the message of truth, that is the gospel that has come to you just as in the entire world. And that's a bit of a hyperbole, but the known world, this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. So it has also been bearing fruit and growing among you from the first day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. You learned the gospel from Epaphras, our dear fellow slave, a, fel a faithful minister of Christ on our behalf, who also told us of your love in the Spirit. Father, as we come to your text, just guide us, O Lord. Uh, move Hophetus out of the way and allow your word to speak to us. These ancient words penned over 2,000 years ago from Rome are just as relevant then as they are today because your Holy Spirit oversaw the writing of this text. And so, Lord, may we not walk out of this sanctuary today the same because we've encountered your word and it's in Jesus name we pray amen well let's unpack the greeting and let's look at what Paul has here again it's very common for the author it's, it's usually the author to the recipients greetings and that's what we see here Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Christ Jesus there's only a few letters where Paul as a peacock will have those feathers come out and you know I'm an apostle It'll be in 1st and 2nd Corinthians, it'll be in Galatians, and it will be in Romans. 1st and 2nd Corinthians and Galatians make sense. Paul is hopping mad in those letters. <laughs> and, and he's strutting his stuff. I'm an apostle. How dare you cross me? Kind of an idea, right? With Romans and with uh, Colossians, these are churches that, that don't know him. He's not had this relationship. So it's kind of a here are my credentials as I write to you. I speak with authority, but it's, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus. Interesting how it's flipped. You would expect Jesus Christ, wouldn't you? But he's highlighting the messianic role of Jesus. Even 20 years out from when Christ rose from the dead, both Jew and Gentile are called to recognize that Jesus is the Meshua. He is the Messiah. And so this is established early on. In, in Christendom, and we see that here, that this is the Messiah, the Lord Jesus. And notice what Paul states, by the will of God. 
I love it. Paul recognizes that his position stemmed from God's grace, didn't he? He didn't earn it. He didn't purchase it, nor did he deserve it. He didn't say, I'm an apostle because, man, I had a great training in the Old Testament. Right? I'm not an apostle because, you know, the church leaders back in Jerusalem understood, you know, I'm a great guy. I, I need to be called. <laughs> no, Paul says, I'm an apostle by the will of God. It's his grace that has been showered upon me. And he says, and Timothy is joining me here, and we, as we mentioned, Timothy. But notice what he says about him. He says, he's our brother. And then he says, to the saints or the holy ones. Paul highlights that even more so when he writes to the church at Corinth because <laughs> uh, they're less than holy in how they're living, but they are still holy because they have been positionally seen in Christ. And that's what he's saying here. You are saints. And then he says the faithful brothers and we could take sisters in Christ here. Elsewhere, Paul mentions brothers and sisters, but the term faithful, this is the only place you're going to find it in Paul's writings in connection with brothers. Interestingly, four times we'll find that word in this letter. Why? I think, this is Hoffman's reading, and again, it's that wah, 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 wah on the phone conversation. But we got a group of believers that Paul is gravely concerned that they will not remain faithful to the gospel. And so he's going to stress it here in the greeting. Don't skip over these opening words in these epistles because they're vital. They're setting the scene. They're letting us know what's happening. And Paul's saying, listen, you are faithful, brothers and sisters, in Christ. Five times he's going to mention Christ in the first eight verses. <laughs> it's vital. They are in Christ. Christ is supreme. And when we get later on, two weeks from now, we look at the Christological hymn, which is in 115 all the way to verse 20. Christ is, uh, you, you can't get to a, a more exalted passage on, on Jesus in the entire New Testament. And, and so we're heading there. But he's, he's reminding them, we have a common bond. It is in Christ, those of you who are at Colossae. And then he gives this greeting, which is a standard Jewish greeting in the first century, and that is grace and shalom, baby, right? It's there. Uh, grace, he's going to highlight. We even see it later on in verse 6. He says the grace of God in truth. It's identifying who they are in Christ. Because what, what Christ has accomplished, we are part of this. Right? And, and by the way, did you see how the book ends? Turn to chapter 4. I'm going to show you the cards. I know we, we shouldn't be looking, but we're going to sneak. Uh, so you kids that are in school, don't read the last chapter first. I did. I shouldn't have done that. It says in verse 18, grace be with you. The whole book is bookended by this call to grace, to understand this is who we are in Christ. This is because of what God has done for us. And then peace, uh, that's a loaded term. Colossians 6, we have the gospel of peace. Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Why? Because it's, it speaks of a well-being uh, tranquility that we have because we are who we are in Jesus. I, I love traveling to Israel because, you know, it's the, the first thing they'll say, shalom. And, and you want to say, ah, but do you know this shalom? 
Do you know this peace that we have in Christ? And as Paul writes to this church, undoubtedly they're troubled. Epaphras is imprisoned, their leader. Uh, there's got to be some chaos. Can you imagine? A, a new church, they don't even really have a... Their leader is gone. He's imprisoned. Uh, there's false teaching that's percolating in the, you know, in the back room. And, and there's trouble. And, and the first thing Paul says, listen, grace and peace. We'll get there. Just hang in there, right? One scholar writes, he says that the giver, and, and notice who the giver is, the grace and peace to you from whom? God, and I love the pronoun here, our Father. It says, this writer states, giver determines the contents and the value of the gift. This isn't, I hope we have peace, I hope we have grace. No, because it's rooted in God. And this is the one who has given. This is the one who sustains. Well, the greeting moves to the thanksgiving in verses 3 through 8. And I will tell you, you want to watch because there are three elements here that are key to the entire book. And we can miss that. And it's in verse 5, he says, faith, love, and hope. I want you to catch this as we go through this passage because those are the key ingredients that are going to be woven throughout this book and, and really are seen throughout Paul's writings. But let's, let's jump back and look at the overarching idea here is giving thanks to God for the believers at Colossae. You then can break it down into two sections if we were diagramming this sucker. The first is how. How, how does he give thanks? In verse 3, Paul states, we do this constantly in prayer. I attended a church in Scotland, Gilcomston, and they had a prayer meeting on Thursday nights for two and a half hours, and they would pull back the screen, and it was an, a map of the globe, the entire world. And they would literally pray through the globe pray through the map for missionaries, for the Lord's work, et cetera, et cetera. And they would have updates and, and they would spend two hours just praying through this. And you get this idea, don't you, in Rome? Here's Paul with his cohorts. There's Timothy, he tells us. There's Epaphras and others who have gathered, some by choice, some not by choice. And they've gathered and they said, listen, Paul says, we've been praying for you. You, you, you've been a topic of conversation more than once. He says, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. And then he gives us, that's the how. And by the way, notice he does not say, we give thanks to you guys for what you're doing. He doesn't congratulate them. He thanks the Father for them. Very, it's key, right? And then he moves into the next section, which is really verses 4 through 8. And this is the why. Why am I giving thanks to God? It's because of your faith, your love, and your hope. Again, those three key ingredients. You know, following recipes are important. Uh, in high school, I had the brilliant idea when my mom was away, I don't know if it was a women's conference or what, I said, Dad, I'm going to make us homemade pizza. I've seen mom do it a ton of times. Move over, Chef Boardie, here we go, right? So I thought I had it down. Mom always browned hamburger, and we put that on the pizza. She made her own dough, and I thought, this is great. Got it down, pepperoni, threw that hamburger on there. One thing I didn't realize is you have to drain the hamburger first. <laughs> 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 I 
That sucker was floating. That pepperoni, it was uh, moving when we pulled it out of the oven. Uh, even our dog wouldn't eat it. So my dad goes, I think we'll call for pizza to be delivered. <laughs> but ingredients are important. And for, uh, for Paul, it's this faith, hope, and love. And again, it's going to be extended throughout the Pauline corpus. But let's look at this. He says, since we heard about your faith, right? It's, it's natural that he would start with faith. Now, when he writes to the church at Corinth, he talks about the love is greatest of these because love is what they are missing, <laughs> big time. And for, in 2 Thessalonians, he will stress hope because they're lacking hope. They thought they missed the rapture and they're in the <laughs> tribulation period. But for this church, it's going to be, he starts first with faith, which is vital because it's without, I would argue, without faith in Christ, you cannot have sincere love, you cannot have true hope. And that's where he's heading. And notice he states it's faith in what? It's in Christ Jesus. That's the object of their faith, but it could be seen as more as the sphere or realm. We could render this as it's which, in which faith operates or how you live it out. This is, this is who you are in Christ. Thomas Watson, I love it, a uh, great Puritan writer, he says the first part, that is faith, is the invisible but the visible is played out in the second part, and that is the love that you have for all the saints. Notice it's not the select few or the ones you like. <laughs> he says it's for all the saints, right? That, that's why we've selected the, the mission statement for the Community Bible Fellowship is loving God and loving others. That's it in a nutshell, isn't it? And, and, and Paul says sincere faith spills out into true love. In fact, I wrote, true faith results in love, while sincere love is because of faith. There, there's, you, you don't just have a belief system. There, there's actions that flow from that for Paul. Sounds a lot like James, doesn't it? Faith without works is dead. And that's what's being highlighted here. And he says, your faith in Christ, your love that you have for all the saints. And then he highlights that again, verse 5. He says, that has sprung out of, it's rooted in hope. What is clear, writes one scholar, is that all three, that is faith, hope, and love, are essential to Christian living. And all three are dependent on and enriching for each other. If I could paraphrase John Bunyan, the Puritan writer, and add a little bit to what he states, hope is never ill when faith and love are well. Right? Let me say it again. Uh, hope is never ill when faith and love are well. We're living in a day where hope <laughs> is really out the window. Lynch, in his book, and Images of Hope, he writes that the fundamental knowledge and feeling that there's a way out of difficulty, that things can work out, that we as human persons can somehow handle and man manage internal and external reality, hope is, in the most general terms, a sense of the possible, he writes. Well, hope for the believer is more than just possible. Notice what Paul states, your hope is laid up for you in heaven our hope is rooted in the unseen. It, it's not shackled by things of this earth. That's good. <laughs> Very good. Nor is 
hope in something that we can muster up in ourselves, right? Rather, as Paul notes in these verses, our hope is centered on Christ, it's secured by Christ, it's obtained through Christ, and it's evidenced because of Christ. Unlike Lynch's idea that hope contains a sense of possibility, I would argue our hope is certain because it's rooted again in Christ. And that's what Paul is saying to these believers who could be waning under the influence of false teachers. He says, you've laid up for your, yourselves in heaven. He says, what you've heard about the message of truth, which he'll repeat twice later in verse 6, that is the gospel. Notice what he says about the gospel. He says, number one, it's true. It's accurate. It's reliable. It's understandable, I would argue, in our postmodern world. And it is certain. I would have students who, under the influence of postmodernity, would argue, well, I don't know if I could be certain of these things. Careful. If that's the case, we have a very sadistic God because He is going to hold us eternally accountable for knowing these things. Oh, yeah, there's much we struggle in under, trying to understand in Scripture, but certain things we should be certain of. <laughs> Paul even said in Acts, as he preached the gospel, you need to be certain that Christ died and rose again. The gospel is certain. It is true. It is accurate, and God has communicated it, and it can be known. Secondly, Paul highlights it's personal. Notice he says, it's come to you right? For God so loved the whole world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Put in your name, for God so loved David that He gave His only begotten Son. It is personal, but it's also inclusive, because notice what he says. He says, just as in the entire world, this God, it's, it, it's available to all who might place their faith in Christ. And so it's true, it's personal, it's inclusive, and I love this, it's dynamic. This isn't fire insurance, you got the gospel, got it down, yay, we go on. No, 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 no. Notice what he says, this gospel, it's bearing fruit and growing. There will be fruit at some point, at some time. Or you need to look in the mirror and take a hard assessment whether or not you're a follower of him. You know, we, we had, I grew up with fruit trees. My parents had a small, small garden, orchard, and all that jazz. You know, and there was one tree we were just going to chop down. And my dad said, if it does not bear fruit, this is year five, that thing is going down. Sure enough, that thing had some pears. It was amazing. I was like, I think it hurt my dad. But, you know, he didn't have pears every year. Stupid tree, but, you know, every other year he'd have some pears. Uh, and this other pear tree, I mean, it just loved giving pears. But that's okay. It's, it's, it's part of, you know, some are going to yield more fruit than others, but there will be fruit. It's going to bear because that's part of the gospel. It's not dead. And, and, and so it's dynamic. And so Paul is highlighting this faith, this love and hope to the church. He says, take heed, hold on to these, right, as you move. And again, they're going to become vital to the rest of this epistle as we journey through it. And again, he highlights there in the last two verses of this Thanksgiving, you learned this gospel from Epaphras, I know, because he is a fellow slave. I love that. 
Who's called a servant of God in the Old Testament? Abraham, Moses. We are servants of God. He's a faithful minister of Christ. Now again, Paul keeps tying it back to Christ on our behalf. And then he says, we also told us of your love, and I love this, in the Spirit. You see the role of the Trinity highlighted in these, just these first few verses. Next week, we're going to dive into 9 through 14 as we look at the content of the prayer that he has for the church. But as we look at this text, you say, well, thank you, Hophaditz. I love to learn a little bit about Colossae. That was nice. And uh, what, how does this all tie in? Well, as I wrote down here, it shouldn't be surprising. Our world longs for something to believe in, don't they? Someone to love and for someone to love them. And for a knowledge or feeling that is, there's a way out of all of this. <laughs> it's called faith. It's called love and it's called hope. And yet areas where our world has placed their faith, love, and hope is crumbling before their very eyes. Whether it's the economy, and one of you shared with me this morning you lost your job this week. Uh, normality, social interchange, government, entertainment, even sports. I uh, hope you're not a Pacers fan. Uh, our world has lost control, right? If anything, the pandemic has only reiterated the bankruptcy of our society. When we turn to the gospel, we find the innate longing in the hearts of humanity. We find faith, we find love, and we find hope. These three ingredients, I would argue, distinguish us from the world that we live in. If the Apostle Paul was to write you a letter this morning, would he give thanks to the Lord for your faith, for your love, and for your hope? If not, which of these areas need attention in your own life? Let's start with faith. Have you placed your faith in Christ? You know, Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. If you think that, you're woefully wrong. In fact, Paul's going to come to that point later on in chapter 3 when we deal with the do's and the don'ts. No, Christianity is not about doing, it's about being in a relationship with Christ. This one who came, died on a cross bearing our sin so that we could have a restored relationship with God Almighty. And if you've not done that, we'd love to share with you how you can come to know Christ as your Savior we're going to have a, there's a prayer thing over here after the service. If you want to meet or catch me afterwards, I'd love to walk through that with you. If you've placed your faith in Christ, how are you doing in the area of love, right? What is your relationship with others? What does Jesus say to the disciples in the upper room? They will know, they, the world, will know you're my disciples if you what? Love one another. <laughs> and I know there's some that are easier to love than others, right? Uh, but we are called to love one another. And then finally, how are you doing in the realm of hope? Our hope rests securely in the Lord, doesn't it? We do not need to fret or be discouraged. It is sure. It is certain. I love what Psalm 46 states, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we do not fret, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Even in the midst of chaos, 
our God is our refuge. From forest fires to huge bees that sting and kill honeybees to this crazy pandemic, God is in charge. And our hope rests securely in the Lord, and our hope results in action. We do not need to be paralyzed by our circumstances, but energized by the certainty of our future prospect. Hope is the source of present strength for believers because it is grounded in what God has done in and through Christ. It's testified by the power of the Spirit, and it's guaranteed for glory that is yet to be revealed. Paul says to the church at Colossae, how I praise God for you, because I hear of your faith and your love for all the saints and your hope. What would he say to you today? How is your faith? How is your hope? How is your love? Key ingredients for the life of the believer, but also the church. Careful, without following the recipe correctly, you might have pepperoni floating on your pizza. Right. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this gem that is nestled in the New Testament. Through the power of the Spirit, you've seen fit these words written to the church at Colossae to be preserved and to be a guide for us. And as Paul opens up this letter to a believers he's never met, but he's heard a lot about, he says, well done, keep up the faith, keep up the love, and keep, up, keep hoping, because all of it is rooted in Christ, your Son, and we thank you. Father, it's our desire to be known as a body of believers that have displaying true faith in the Lord, living out the love that you've called us to do, and clinging to the hope that you've set before us. We'll thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.